This is Randy Meyer from Salt Lake City, Utah. And you're listening to California Green on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers, or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get to today's show. But first, I need to take time to thank everyone who has continued to pledge support for California Jimmy on Patreon. I have a goal to eventually make this my full-time gig, and every single one of you who has been able to join in and support the show is helping me get one step closer to making that a reality. So, I would like to take the time to thank Brad Dunshee of the Mattachine Podcast, April McEwing, Cynthia Dreiger, Heather Brown, Connie Lady, Chris Townsend, Darren James, who upped his pledge, A. Mia, and Lauren Sackler-Rios. Thank you to all of you who continue to help me keep this show up and running. Also, before we get started, I must warn you that this episode contains graphic details involving violent sexual assaults on young girls that may not be suitable for all listeners. If there are young children around, You may want to save this episode for later. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Dreamers, let's travel back in time to 2002 for just a moment. Where were you at that time? Me? Well, my daughter was going to turn three that year. She was in preschool and I was a teacher at the preschool. I had gone back to college part-time in the evenings, and it was a pretty busy time, but I remember it well because it was a really fun and special time for my daughter and me. She was getting out of that terrible twos stage, but honestly, it wasn't really all that bad. She was talking and socializing and making friends and enjoying school. We had a lot of fun and I was able to connect with the parents of her friends because I worked there. We had playdates and birthday parties and slumber parties. It was good times, no doubt. But there was something strange going on during that time. And I knew these bizarre events were taking place and it concerned me, but I wasn't too worried about it. 
specifically when it came to my daughter because we were always together. She came with me to work and we went home together, so it felt like she was rarely out of my sight or any place that I might worry about her. But from the spring into the summer and then into the fall of 2002, there was this string of very high-profile kidnappings going on around the country. Two of them we've talked about here on California Dreaming. I won't go into too much detail about each of the cases, because truth be told, throughout the series of episodes that I've put out thus far, I've talked a lot about some of these cases. But let me just list them for you quickly, so you can kind of put 2002 into a little bit of context. On February 1st, 2002, Seven-year-old Danielle Van Dam was kidnapped in San Diego, California. She was murdered. On June 5th, 2002, 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped in Salt Lake City, Utah. She was rescued on March 12th, 2003. On July 15th, 2002, 5-year-old Samantha Runyon was kidnapped in Stanton, California. She was murdered. On July 22, 2002, 7-year-old Erica Pratt was kidnapped in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She was able to escape. On August 22, 2002, 21-year-old Michelle Knight was kidnapped in Cleveland, Ohio. She was rescued on May 6, 2013. On October 6, 2002, 11-year-old Sean Hornbeck was kidnapped in Richwoods, Missouri. He was rescued January 12, 2007. And on November 11, 2002, 19-year-old Samantha Burns was kidnapped in Huntington, West Virginia. Her fate remains unknown. Extraordinary, isn't it? When you list all of these high-profile kidnappings one right after another, we've talked about a lot of them in some capacity throughout the course of our show. But I really hadn't made the connection that these were kidnappings committed in the window of 2002. That is, until I researched today's story. I started seeing these articles coming up in my Google search as I was looking for stories related to the one that we are going to discuss today. Articles entitled, Summer Kidnapping Panic and The Grim Summer of Abducted Children as a good number of the cases I listed did indeed take place during the summer, as did the one that I'm going to tell you about today. In this 60th episode of California Dreaming, The Tales of Jackie and Tamara. 17-year-old Jackie Maris probably could not be a more quintessential California teenager. She was the eldest of the children in her family, a strong individual, a very driven, motivated high school student. She was a cheerleader, and in her free time, she loved to go surfing. However, on the evening of Thursday, August 1st, 2002, an event as extraordinary as much as it was terrifying would ultimately prove how atypical Jackie actually is. She was out that summer evening on Quartz Hill, which is located in the high desert area north of Los Angeles. 
It also happens to be a pretty popular hangout that overlooks the city of Palmdale, California. They went there to hang out, to listen to music, to look at the stars. Jackie was there with a young man named Frank Malero, a 19-year-old who had just finished off the required coursework to become an emergency medical technician. The clock had already ticked past midnight. Jackie was going to have to head home soon. Her curfew was approaching. They were sitting in Frank's Mazda pickup truck when, seemingly out of nowhere, someone appeared at his driver's side window. Frank felt something cold and metal pressed up against his head. He knew it was a gun. Behind the gun was a man named Roy Dean Ratliff. And this guy was trouble. He was a fugitive at the time, a warrant out for his arrest. He was wanted for rape. He demanded that Frank throw his wallet out of the car, which he did. Ratliff picked it up and took out $60, and he appeared to be very agitated and angry. Ratliff's behavior was erratic, seemingly on the verge of losing control. He told them to keep their heads down and to not look at him. They began to hear the sound of duct tape being unraveled. But Ratliff, it seemed, was kind of running low. He asked Frank if he had any rope, which he happened to have in the bed of his truck. Ratliff kept pointing the gun at the back of Frank's head and ordered him to retrieve the rope, all the while calling him bro, asking him if he thought he was a tough guy. He asked Frank, do you think I'll kill you? All Frank could answer back was, yeah, I think you'll kill me. You've got a gun. You will kill me. Fortunately, he didn't kill Frank. Ratliff ordered him back into the truck, and it was then he began punching him in the face. And then he used the rope and duct tape to secure Frank to the driver's seat of the car. The smell of alcohol was emanating from his breath. And then suddenly the three of them noticed a Department of Water and Power, or DWP, vehicle pull up nearby where they were parked. The worker, of course, had no idea a robbery and assault were in progress. Frank and Jackie were just seated in the cab of the truck, and Ratliff was still standing outside the vehicle next to the driver's side window. He whispered to the teens, Don't move, or I will kill you. They watched as the utility worker was walking around, checking up on whatever it was he was there to check on, and they just sat quietly and waited. But there was one sound that Frank and Jackie could hear. Ratliff tapping his gun on the car door. Just to let these two kids know that they'd better not do anything to draw the attention of the DWP employee. For Frank and Jackie, the sound of that gun tapping was terrifying. One wrong move, and this guy could kill them. And this innocent guy who was just out there doing his job, his life was in danger as well. So they stayed as quiet as they possibly could. 
Jackie, very, very quietly told Frank that she was scared. And he whispered back that God would take care of them. Their lives were in God's hands. Frank's hands were bound, but Jackie's weren't. She reached over and placed her hand on his and began praying. No sooner had she done that, Ratliff came around to the passenger side and pulled her out of Frank's truck. The fear just surged through her. She had no idea what was going to happen next. He began to bind her with duct tape as well, and he ran out before she was completely secure. Jackie was blindfolded, but not very well. She could still kind of see out from below, and being led along by Ratliff, she started stumbling along with him over to a Ford Bronco he had parked a short distance away. When Jackie was placed into the back seat of the Bronco, she suddenly spotted a pair of legs. Horrified, her mind first thought that she was looking at a dead body. But Jackie would soon realize that it wasn't a dead body. Those legs belonged to another young teenager, Tamara Brooks. She was a 16-year-old honor student, just about to start her junior year of high school, and she was still very much alive. This would be the first time Tamara and Jackie ever met. Bound, kidnapped, taken by this stranger, and thrown in the back of this Ford Bronco. Back where Frank was left taped to his seat, he eventually managed to get himself free and call police from his cell phone. It was just about the same time when he noticed another young guy nearby who was also bound with duct tape. He was 18-year-old Eric Brown. He had been hanging out that night at Quartz Hill with Tamara, it was shortly after they arrived that Ratliff drove up as well, behind the wheel of a stolen silver Saturn. Tamara and Eric had been approached by Ratliff also, brandishing his gun. He told Eric that he was going to kill him, but he didn't want to. But there were two things that he wanted, their money and their Bronco. When the man first appeared at the window, Tamara's first inclination was that he was a police officer and they were going to be in some big trouble. And that is about when she noticed the man was holding a gun. At first, the gunman was demanding money, but Tamara didn't have a purse with her. She didn't have anything. She was terrified, desperately trying to appear calm, but she was shaking and she had a lump in her throat. The man ordered Eric out of the car. Eric pleaded for his life, telling Ratliff that he did not want to die. Tamara could not muster the strength to say anything. She couldn't speak. She just quietly, silently prayed to live to see her family again. Ratliff took Eric a short distance away and bound him with the duct tape. Tamara petrified, waited in the vehicle. When Ratliff returned, he assured her that all he wanted was the Bronco. But 
Ratliff decided he wanted Tamara as well. He proceeded to duct tape her to the seat of the vehicle. She knew then that he was taking the Bronco and her as well. And it would be a little while later after tying up Eric, carjacking him, and abducting Tamara that he went and did the same thing to Jackie and Frank, abducting Jackie and leaving Frank behind tied up. And then, with Tamara and Jackie bound and blindfolded in the back of the vehicle, Ratliff drove off away from Quartz Hill. Let's pause here for a moment and talk a little bit about who this Roy Dean Ratliff person is. He is a man who led an exceedingly troubled life. He was a repeat offender with a criminal history dating back to his childhood, before he'd even turned 10 years old. He had criminal records in California, Nevada, and Nebraska. And by the time our story today took place, Ratliff had spent nearly 12 of the last 13 years in prison. And he was currently wanted in Kern County on a $3 million warrant for allegedly raping a 19-year-old relative the previous October, just months after getting out of prison on a drug possession conviction. It was after failing to contact his parole officer after his July 29, 2001 release from prison that he was officially declared a fugitive. Ratliff was raised in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, and like I said, he had a criminal record, according to Scottsbluff authorities, that began when he was only seven years old. Dreamers, I literally have no idea what kinds of crimes a seven-year-old is committing that are actually on his criminal record. As he got older, he was arrested for truancy, he was a regular runaway, he would burglarize buildings. He had been placed in foster care, but eventually he was sent to a boys' group home when he was 13 years old. From the time Ratliff was 12 through the age of 24, he was arrested and served some jail time at least 16 times. Scottsbluff County sheriffs referred to Ratliff as a regular customer. And when Ratliff was 19, he was convicted of being underage and in the possession of alcohol, theft, and drunk driving. When he was 21, he was convicted of felony burglary and sentenced to 19 months in prison. Between June of 1987 and September of 1988, Ratliff was convicted three times for driving on a suspended license. In 1989, he was convicted of shoplifting and forgery. After he served time for that, he ended up moving to California. And it wasn't long before he began adding to his criminal record here as well. In 1989, Ratliff was convicted of burglary and was sentenced to two years in state prison. Two years later, in 1991, he pleaded guilty to another burglary charge and sentenced to 88 months in prison. He was released in January of 1996 but went back 13 months later in February of 1997 convicted of possession of methamphetamines. And this is the man that just snatched two teenage girls from Quartz Hill 
driving off with them, bound with duct tape and blindfolded in the back of this Ford Bronco. This was like their worst nightmare, our worst nightmare. And it's actually happening to these two young girls. Ratliff had with him two guns, as well as extra ammunition. As he drove, he continued to promise Tamara and Jackie that he would return them to Quartz Hill. Dreamers, we hear this a lot. We've talked about quite a few abductions lately. And even just earlier today, I was listening to Generation Y telling the kidnappings of Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina DeJesus. And these men who take these young girls and women against their will tend to keep making these empty promises to let them go or take them back home or they're not going to hurt them. They just want to rob them. That also happened with Carol, Julie, and Sylvania in episode 58 with Carrie Stainer when he sexually assaulted them and ultimately killed them all. He just kept telling them that he wanted to rob them. It happened in episode 59 with Nick Markowitz. His kidnappers kept reassuring him that they were going to take him home and they ended up killing him as well. Even in the case of Steven Stainer, his abductor made him think that he wasn't wanted by his family anymore. It's this way of manipulating or controlling their victims. Ratliff was doing the same exact thing, telling Tamara and Jackie that he would take them back. But he never would. Ratliff continued driving for about a half hour. This was getting into the wee hours of the morning. It was so dark and desolate where they were. He finally pulled over when he was certain they were far enough away to be isolated from anyone else. He allowed Tamara and Jackie to take off their blindfolds. In this man's moods, they seemed to, without warning, swing wildly from being extremely kind to his captives and then suddenly without warning he shifted into a completely different rage-filled extremely cruel individual he would be seemingly loving and compassionate towards both Tamara and Jackie and then just as suddenly he would brandish his weapon he would spew threats telling them that he would kill them if they don't do what he demands and he would sexually assault both Tamara and Jackie. At some point during this ordeal, the door of the Bronco that Jackie was seated next to, she noticed that it was cracked open. She could see that there were cars going by, and she thought that she could flag somebody down, get someone's attention who could help them, the thought crossed her mind that maybe she could run and escape. The chance was there. She would just bolt out the door. But she would decide that she just couldn't leave Tamara behind. Remember, Jackie and Tamara did not know each other prior to this night. They had never met. They were not friends. But now... They were thrust together in this nightmarish ordeal. Jackie, yeah, she could make a run for it. She could probably get away with it too. 
But what would happen to Tamara if she did? This man who was holding them captive was so unpredictable. Jackie had no idea what he would do to Tamara if she were to attempt an escape and actually succeed. Would he become enraged? Would he take it out on her? Would he hurt Tamara more, more than he already had thus far? Jackie decided not to run. She refused to leave Tamara behind. At some point, Ratliff began driving again. Somehow, Jackie needed to figure out a way to silently communicate with Tamara. They were terrified to even breathe, much less attempt to speak or whisper to one another. Very slowly and quietly, while in the back of the Bronco, as Ratliff drove, Jackie took hold of Tamara's hand. And using her finger, she spelled words out on the palm of her hand. The first thing she traced onto her palm? Need a plan. Tamara took Jackie's hand and spelled a word back onto her palm. Knife. Tamara knew the young man that she was with earlier in the night. This was his Bronco, and she knew he kept a knife in the vehicle. They quietly communicated with their finger tracing that Jackie would try to get a hold of the knife at the first opportunity she had, and she would use it against Ratliff. From the very beginning of this terrifying kidnapping and assault, Jackie had already come to the determination that she was not going to go down without a fight. To her, the only thing to do, the right thing to do, was to fight for her life. Because for her, not fighting is not an option. Jackie was still laying across the back seat. Her hands were still bound as Ratliff drove and drove and drove for a really long time. She had rope tied around her neck, and this was keeping her bound to Tamara. Tamara's mother, Sharon, was a high school art teacher. While all of this was going on, she happened to be in South Korea visiting her oldest daughter, a West Point graduate and lieutenant in the United States Army. And Jackie's mom, Nadine, was a homemaker, married to her husband, Ron, who operated a truck that creates rain and snow on movie sets. She was at home when she received a call at four in the morning from law enforcement. Nadine rushed down to the sheriff's station, and she was given small pieces of information about what was going on with her daughter. She was beside herself, thinking that this can't possibly be happening. She remembered the FBI coming into the room where she was seated. There were so many agents there. At around six in the morning, the reality of what was going on began sinking in. She started thinking that this is really bad, and this was not going to end well. The FBI started putting together a command post. They started brewing coffee, and they started bringing in food. It didn't look like this was going to come to an end anytime soon. And Nadine just had to sit there and wait and see what would become of her little girl. 
As daybreak arrived, an Amber Alert would be issued. And this would mark the very first time the Amber Alert was used in the state of California. We will come back to the role the Amber Alert played in this case a little bit later. So as Ratliff drove, Jackie and Tamara did what they could to comfort one another. As horrifying as we can only imagine this could be, they found this comfort that they weren't alone. They kept each other encouraged, and they kept each other's spirits up, albeit in complete silence. They bonded from the moment that they were thrown into that Bronco together. They had each other, and that was a million times better than being alone. And throughout the entire night, neither Tamara or Jackie shed one tear. They thought a lot about their families. They knew that their parents and family and friends would be so worried about them. That was the most difficult part of all of this knowing how afraid that their loved ones were, not knowing where Tamara and Jackie were at. It was deeply upsetting thinking about their families. All Jackie could do was try and find some way to comfort herself and Tamara. She began softly singing blessed and as best she could, being bound the way that she was, she softly stroked Tamara's leg and her arms. It was all she could do to try to make this any bit easier. Jackie found comfort in singing. Whenever she was upset or something wasn't going right, she would just start singing. And in a small way, it worked. For Tamara, she kind of transported herself back in time into her mother's arms listening to Jackie softly sing to her like her mother was singing lullabies. In her own head, Tamara began singing to herself too, songs that comforted her when she was a child. Slowly, Jackie and Tamara were able to remain calm and they began to relax. They weren't losing hope. They were able to focus and they were formulating that plan. Tamara, spelling words onto Jackie's palm, asked if she could see the knife. She knew it was there in the car. Eric had shown it to her. And Jackie did see the knife. It was just a matter of finding an opportunity to get a hold of it. Ratliff himself had spotted the knife as well. At one point, he had picked it up and looked at it. He ran his finger across the blade, but he didn't do anything else with it and set it back down. There was also a whiskey bottle in the vehicle. The plan was, the moment that they had the chance, Jackie would take the knife and stab Ratliff, and Tamara would take the whiskey bottle and smash him over the head with it. This was a very bold plan. It was all a matter of waiting for the right time and building up the courage to actually pull it off. And the opportunity eventually presented itself. Having been up all night, heavily drinking and assaulting Tamara and Jackie, Ratliff eventually fell asleep. 
Jackie and Tamara watched him. They could see his pulse in his neck. They watched silently as his eye flickered on occasion. Once he was asleep, they began thinking about carrying out their plan to try and kill this man who had abducted and assaulted them. It became one of those now-or-never moments. These girls were not going to go down without a fight. Tamara, all she could do was hope that she wouldn't be damned to hell for killing this man. He had been telling them all night that he was going to kill them. They weren't sure if he was going to or not. They were hoping that they would survive this, but they needed to at least put up a fight if they were going to die anyway. The sun was beginning to rise, and they had parked on a very desolate dirt road somewhere in the Mojave Desert. They were about 130 miles or 193 kilometers from where this had all started back at Quartz Hill. Before he had dozed off, he had taken both of his guns and loaded them, briefly getting out of the car and test-firing them. Tamara and Jackie were pretty convinced that he took them there to that spot to kill them. And they had to do something. They had to get away or they were going to die. They started to begin the tedious struggle of trying to free themselves from the rope and the duct tape that they were bound with. Jackie managed to lick the duct tape off. If you lick it enough, it just loses its adhesiveness. And soon, it just came right off. Jackie, poised to make a grab for that knife which was on the center console, and Tamara would go for the whiskey bottle which was on the front seat. They readied themselves to attack the man who had been attacking them. They had to get through a couple of one, two, threes, but they hesitated. Ratliff had one of his guns in his lap. They were terrified that he was going to wake up. And what if they missed or the plan didn't work? And Jackie, she wasn't sure if she could stab Ratliff. She saw his eye flicker again, and they thought that he was going to wake up, so they just had to do it, fast. And he did wake up. But before he could process what was going on, Jackie grabbed the knife and stabbed Ratliff in the neck, while simultaneously Tamara smashed him in the face with the whiskey bottle. They shoved him out of the vehicle. Jackie threw the knife at him. Tamara threw the bottle and they locked the doors and rolled up the windows. But unfortunately, Jackie did not hit him in the jugular. She only wounded him. It was bleeding profusely, but it wasn't fatal. And what's worse, Ratliff still had the keys to the Bronco, and he had both of his guns. Their plan didn't work. And now... Could they have possibly made things so much worse? There was no going back. They stabbed him, and they smashed him in the face with a bottle. They were so filled with fear. Now that they've done this, there was no way to undo this. 
and they were going to have to suffer the consequences of it. Bleeding from the knife wound to his neck, Ratliff was screaming at them from outside the Bronco to open the door or he would kill them. Jackie and Tamara yelled back at him, asking him if he believed in Jesus Christ, if he believed in God. It seemed to calm him down for a bit. They asked him if there was going to be anyone who would be upset if he died, and he yelled back that nobody cared about him. And then he took one of his guns and started shooting over the Bronco. And then he became silent as they continued talking to him about God. If he was going to kill them, would God ever forgive him for what he was about to do? Ratliff got quiet. And Jackie and Tamara, they really didn't have a choice but to let him back in the vehicle. At this point, they were nine hours into this ordeal. Ratliff told them that he decided he could not control the both of them, so he was going to have to shoot one of them. He came up with a sick little game. In the scuffle with Tamara and Jackie, Ratliff's glasses were lost. He posed this challenge. The first one who was able to find his glasses gets to live. Obviously, that wasn't going to work. If he thought he was going to somehow pit Tamara and Jackie against each other, he had another thing coming. These two were not going to be divided by this man. So no. They told him no. Find your own glasses. That they were in this together. And once he was back in the vehicle, and he didn't kill them, even after they had attacked him and stabbed him. They found this glimmer of hope that they might actually make it out of this alive. The search was underway for Tamara and Jackie, and it was massive. The Amber Alert for the first time in California flashed on freeway billboards across the state with the description and the license plate of the Ford Bronco. And as time ticked by, the search intensified. And it was sometime late in the morning that a woman walked into a police station. She was clearly distraught over something. She had in her hand a picture of her husband. She handed it over to the officer in the reception area. She couldn't be 100% certain, but she strongly suspected that her husband was the person at the center of this manhunt telling them that she thought her husband could very likely be the one who kidnapped Tamara and Jackie. Her husband was none other than Roy Dean Ratliff. She explained that, for the most part, he was kind to her and to her children. When he is sober, he is a good man, but alcohol poisoned his mind and his thinking, turning him into a different person. Okay, I get that, but this guy has been a criminal since, what, second, third grade? His wife was there trying to explain, trying to make excuses for this man, trying to blame his violent tendencies on alcohol consumption. 
but ultimately it was her deep compassion for the young girls who were being victimized. And she knew deep in her heart that it was her husband that was terrorizing them. So now law enforcement had a potential suspect. Back inside the Bronco, Ratliff was continuing to bleed from the wound in his neck. He got back into the driver's seat and went back to the highway. He told Jackie to look at his neck and when there was a lot of blood to let him know and he would try to clean it up. It would bleed more and she would keep telling him to wipe it up and he did. As he drove, he told Jackie and Tamara that he didn't care if he died or not. At 7 a.m., a little more than six hours after Tamara and Jackie were kidnapped, the Amber Alert went active across California. We have talked about the Amber Alert system several times over the course of our show, so I'm not going to talk about it too much now. But the alert was broadcasted through the emergency broadcast system, and the message was up on more than 500 electronic freeway signs with the Broncos license plate and a toll-free number to call if anyone had any information. But because this was the first time the Amber Alert was utilized, some drivers were confused as to what the message on the freeway signs meant. They did not know what an Amber Alert was. So shortly after it was issued, the CHP headquarters changed the wording from Amber Alert to Child Abduction. At approximately 9.30 a.m., someone who had heard the emergency broadcast flagged down a Kern County Sheriff deputy to report having seen the white Ford Bronco traveling on California Highway 178, a little west of Lake Isabella. A highway worker named Milton Walters was also out on the job that morning, and he heard the Amber Alert reports of a child abduction. And it was about an hour and a half after the first reported sighting of the Bronco that Mr. Walters spotted the white Bronco himself headed in his direction, still on Highway 178. As the Bronco passed him, he looked directly at the man behind the wheel, and he was able to see him clear as day. He kind of had a smirk on his face, and when he passed by Mr. Walters, the driver of the Bronco gave him a little head nod. Mr. Walters grabbed his cell phone and called police. Police helicopters and planes quickly headed to the area to scour Highway 178 from the skies. But dreamers, the California desert is vast. The Bronco could not be found. And then Jackie and Tamara felt the relatively smooth ride turn rough suddenly. Ratliff had driven the truck off the road. Fear coursed through Jackie and Tamara. This was it, they thought. He was going to drive to some desolate place off the road where nobody ever goes. And he's going to kill them and dump them someplace nobody will ever find them. And if Ratliff was ever going to figure a way out of this mess that he caused, the concern would be the girls. They were going to become a burden to him. How much longer could he run with the two of them in tow? What do you do when you have excess baggage you don't need? You dump it. As he took the Bronco off the main road, 
This is where it has been surmised that Ratliff was going to get rid of them. He found a place. He parked the vehicle. And it was almost certain that he was going to kill Jackie and Tamara right then and there. And just before 1 p.m., Kern County Sheriff's deputies flying overhead in a helicopter spotted the Bronco driving along an unpaved dirt road. Inside, Tamara and Jackie could hear the helicopters flying overhead as well. And the sound kept getting louder and louder as the helicopter drew closer to where the Bronco was located. But was this going to be a good thing? Or was this going to make things worse? Tamara and Jackie worried. He had warned them, at the first sight of police, they were all going to die. And so, the sounds of an approaching helicopter brought more fear and worry for them. So Tamara and Jackie started hoping that the helicopter would just go away. They had made it this far. Just the fact that Ratliff hadn't killed them after they tried to kill him had given them this renewed sense of hope that he really didn't want to do that. But they were worried now. How desperate was Ratliff going to become now that he's been spotted by that helicopter? From the ground, Kern County deputies James Stratton and Larry Thatcher followed the direction the helicopter was flying. They soon arrived at one of the most isolated stretches of land in the Mojave Desert. They pulled up, approaching the Bronco Park there. The deputies were now face to face with Ratliff. They drew their weapons. Deputy Thatcher ordered him to show his hands, to put them where they could see them. But Ratliff answered back, No way. Suddenly, Ratliff started up the Bronco again in an attempt to flee. He drove straight into the brush and made a very sharp left turn, nearly flipping the SUV onto its side. Then, just as suddenly as Ratliff attempted to speed off, the vehicle got stuck on a rock. Ratliff tried to get the Bronco moving again, but it wouldn't budge. The deputies gave chase, running down the embankment towards where the Bronco was stuck but they needed to do something quickly. They had no idea where Jackie and Tamara were at. They didn't know if they were in the vehicle or if Ratliff had dumped them. They were, in fact, lying down in the back seat. They could see the deputies, but the deputies could not see them. They continued to advance towards the Bronco, and it was just the two of them in open desert. They had no backup. It was just them, walking towards a very volatile and unstable Ratliff, who was becoming more desperate and unhinged as the seconds ticked by. He suddenly turned and faced towards the back seat. He had one of his guns in his hand, and he pointed it at Jackie's head. She thought, this was it. He was going to kill her. He had pressed it against her head. And Ratliff yelled at the deputies, I have the girls. You better not shoot or else they are going to die. The deputies really had no time to think about this. 
They were only six feet away from Ratliff and their lives were on the line, but so were the lives of Jackie and Tamara. Only a matter of seconds passed when Ratliff aimed his weapon towards the window of the Bronco and fired one shot, shattering the window. The deputies returned fire and Jackie and Tamara were now caught in the middle of a gun battle. Both deputies took aim at Ratliff and fired. Glass was raining down all around them. They could see Ratliff's face. He looked as if he had a sense of defeat. It would be a bullet from the gun fired by Deputy Thatcher that ended Ratliff's life. He was 37 years old. When the gunfire ceased, Deputy Stratton noticed that the Bronco was moving. And then he heard some screaming. And I think he used the perfect analogy in describing this moment. It was like the sounds of a newborn baby. When you hear crying, you want to hear that crying because you know when you hear it, you know they're alive. And when the shooting finally came to a stop, a total of 17 bullets struck that Ford Bronco. And with all that Jackie and Tamara had gone through during this 12-hour long ordeal, they made it out alive. They sustained some minor abrasions during the course of the abduction, but they were not struck by any of the gunfire or injured by any of the flying glass. After a few seconds of gunfire and smoke, Tamara and Jackie had their lives back. Of course, things were not ever going to be the same, but the relief of being able to walk away from this rather than carried away in a body bag was tremendous. Tremendous for them, for the deputies, for their family and friends, and for all of us who followed this story on the news as it unfolded. I clearly remember watching Tamara and Jackie on the news as they were being rescued from that Bronco. I looked online to see if I could find any news clips or footage regarding this case, but I couldn't find anything. And there seems to be a reason for that. There are a couple of concerns raised about cases like Jackie's and Tamara's. You see, when they were kidnapped, their names, their ages, their faces were broadcasted across the media. The statewide Amber Alert was activated in order to help track down the vehicle that they were known to be taken in. All of this was done in an effort to find these two abducted teenagers, children essentially. But when it was revealed that Jackie and Tamara not only survived the abduction, but they also survived being raped by Ratliff, they all but vanished from the media. And to be honest, when this happened 16 years ago, it hadn't really crossed my mind that there was a concerted effort on the part of the news outlets and publications to wipe Jackie's and Tamara's names and faces from the reports and articles. I read an article written back in 2002 shortly after the abduction on Salon.com entitled The Shame of Rape by Margot McGowan. I wanted to share some of it with you and get your thoughts about the media hiding the names and faces of rape victims who fought back against their attacker 
instead of showing reverence for their courage and bravery, particularly if they do choose to speak out about their ordeal. The article opens with a comparison to a kidnapping that took place in Philadelphia nine days before Jackie and Tamara's kidnapping, seven-year-old Erica Pratt. On July 22, 2002, Erica was grabbed from a sidewalk. A six-year-old named Ranny Bird saw the abduction as it happened, but was pushed down and the abductors fled with Erica. She was bound with duct tape and kept at an abandoned house. She was able to gnaw her way through the tape around her wrists. She removed the tape from her feet. She smashed out a window, freeing herself from this kidnapping by the very next day. Erica was not sexually abused. And when her story hit the media, she was celebrated for her bravery and courage. Her problem-solving and her determination were cited as lessons for others. She served as an inspiration and a reminder that not all abductions end tragically. Time magazine named Erica their person of the week. And in May of 2003, the United States Attorney General John Ashcroft presented Erica with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's National Courage Award. As McGowan wrote, quote, Electrified by the young girl's feet, the media celebrated Erica with a prolonged blitz of coverage. She smiled luminously for cameras as odd police officers praised her bravery. Her photo graced the front pages of newspapers across the nation. When Tamara Brooks and Jackie Maris were abducted at gunpoint nine days later from a remote teenage tryst spot in Lancaster, California, they devised a plan to break free by stabbing their abductor in the neck. When one girl had the chance to escape, she did not take it for fear that the other girl, whom she hadn't met before that night, would be killed if she abandoned her. These were brave and loyal girls, heroines who endured mind-numbing terror before police found them and killed their captor, who authorities believe was preparing to murder them and dump their bodies. But Brooks and Maris were not honored by Time magazine or identified as heroes in media outlets. Why not? What made their story different? And Dreamers, by the way, the two deputies that rescued Tamara and Jackie also received awards from Attorney General Ashcroft at that very same ceremony as Erica Pratt. Jackie and Tamara's story was huge news here in Southern California, if not throughout the state when it happened. The media descended upon the area, of course, to get their coverage of this out there as fast as possible for their news shows and articles. The search for Jackie and Tamara had been everywhere for the 12 hours that they were missing. Their pictures were out there, their names, their ages. The desperation to find them was penetrating, in the hopes that their lives would be saved. Get their names and faces out there to as many people as possible so citizens could be on the lookout for them and their captor. And then they were found alive, and the community was overjoyed that they made it back. Many kidnapping victims don't. But then it was confirmed that Tamara and Jackie had been sexually assaulted by Ratliff, and the media hit the skids on the story. 
most media outlets adhere to a policy of withholding the identities of survivors of sexual assault. So reporting on Jackie and Tamara completely vanished. The media would explain that this is a way to be sensitive to the victims or survivors because they're that too media and they don't want to bring attention to something that was so intimate and personal. And the author of the article came to the conclusion that in doing this, hiding the names and faces of sexual assault victims only promotes that implicit belief that society has adopted that when sexual assault is a component of a crime, the victim is, in part, if not wholly to blame and needs to be kept hidden. Once it was discovered that Tamara and Jackie had been raped by their abductor, television stations were no longer showing their faces. They were pixelating their pictures. Newspapers were in a mad dash to edit their names and photos out of the edition set to go out the next morning. But for other publications, it was too late. Their articles on Tamara and Jackie had already gone to press. And these are the same media outlets and newspapers that had just splashed their pictures and names all over the place in the hopes of making every single citizen out there aware that these teenagers were kidnapped. They're out there somewhere. Look for their faces. And thankfully, it worked, and they were found. McGowan writes in her article, quote, But once the teens went from being kidnapped youths to rescued rape survivors their status changed. They were branded with the Scarlet R. They had been raped, and it was suddenly better for them and for us to contemplate this shame without fanfare. In effect, the girls disappeared twice, once when they were abducted and again when the media erased them. The policy of hiding the rape survivor makes the media complicit in shaming or stigmatizing her. It reinforces the myth that women are too weak, too traumatized, too tainted to decide whether they want to tell their own stories of victory, not victimhood. And this assumption becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If raped women were granted the same status as Erica Pratt, there would be no reflex to want to make them disappear. Their survival would be cause for public honor and respect. Their rescues would be complete. Their recovery would begin with heartfelt acceptance by everyone who prayed for their return. And McGowan continued in her article to make this comparison. Quote, Silence and shame protected the Catholic Church and one of its dirtiest secrets for years. And church officials made the right assumption. If you can't see it, No one will believe it's happening, and more importantly, victims who are shamed and controlled will be quiet, silenced by a sense of complicity and sin. What if all of those alleged male sexual assault survivors who went on 60 Minutes in 2020 had their faces covered or pixelated? What if no newspapers or magazines would be willing to publish their names? How much credibility or validity or power can you have when you have no face and no name? Would the public have believed these things had happened if faces had not been attached to the charges? 
you can't put faceless women on the cover of Time magazine. Now, dreamers, granted this article was written 16 years ago, and it was then, as it is now, unacceptable to victim blame or shame a sexual assault survivor, but also at that time, as Tamara and Jackie were erased from the media, it was also unacceptable to recognize them for their heroism, the strength in fighting back against their attacker, their loyalty to one another despite being complete strangers, and to honor them for their survival. The media wiped them from their pages and their reports, but they decided that they were going to tell their story and they weren't going to hide behind a curtain of shame and stigma. Jackie and Tamara were going to be honest and raw without feelings of humiliation and embarrassment. And they did this because they just wanted the takeaway from all of this to be to never give up. Just fight, no matter what. They both came forward with the support of their families, but it wasn't without criticism either. And I have posed the question on Facebook in the discussion group as I'm writing this. I will include some of your answers and opinions when it comes to the media and sexual assault. In further discussing this subject, I did find another interesting read regarding the ethics and the newsworthiness of sensational stories, and it discussed Tamara and Jackie's story, but it compared and contrasted it with the execution of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl just about exactly six months prior to their kidnapping. Now, I'm not going to get too much into Daniel's story beyond what is discussed in this article, but... Because he was an alumni of Stanford University here in California, that might be enough of a connection to possibly be featured on our show. Let me know what you out there listening think. Would you like me to tell you the story of Daniel Pearl? Let me know. So, this article, well, it seems more like an essay. It was written by Denny Elliott, the director of Practical Ethics Center, the University of Montana, and Paul Lester, professor of communications at California State University, Fullerton. It's entitled, A Tale of Two Sensational Stories. And it reads, in part, as follows. This past summer season, news media personnel were faced with two highly sensational, visual, and different story choices. The decisions that were made provided some lessons about the concept of newsworthiness and the power of visual images. At the end of May of 2002, CBS News, the Boston Phoenix, and a handful of websites chose to show some or all of the three-and-a-half-minute propagandized video death of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl. Other news organizations decided to use only written descriptions and quotations deeming the images too gruesome for public viewing because family and government officials requested that the visuals not be shown. A couple months later, network talk show bookers and producers tripped one another in their attempts to be the first, second, or even third to broadcast an interview with kidnapping and assault victims. But as dreamers, we know them as kidnapping and assault survivors, right? Tamara Brooks, 16, and Jackie Maris, 17. 
Their faces filled columns in newspapers and magazines. They told the story of their abduction in their own words and in their own voices. The inherent differences between these stories, as well as the differences offered for why most news organizations responded so differently to the two stories at first, seems obvious. The criticisms heaped on the news organizations for their visual presentations of these stories seem different in kind. What we found captivating, however, was the similarity in the need for news organizations to show and for viewers to see such images. That similarly, for why both visual stories should have been shown in a restrained way can be found in the principle of newsworthiness. But first, let's look at some of the differences. An obvious difference between the two stories is that of victim or survivor or family consent. Daniel Pearl's family, as well as the U.S. Departments of State and Justice, asked CBS News to refrain from using the videotape. CBS's news anchor, Dan Rather, defended his organization's decision to run a portion of the video with, we believe it's important for Americans to see it and understand the full impact and danger of the propaganda war being waged against the United States and its allies, and also its effect on the young people of the Arab world. We did not show the graphic scenes contained on the videotape, both for reasons of taste and out of respect for Mr. Pearl's family. CBS News brought you this report because, even in highly edited form, the video illustrates how far an enemy will go to spread its message of hate for the United States. The Boston Phoenix reported the Pearl story and was criticized when it provided a link to the video. Many believe the video had no news value whatsoever. And when the FBI ordered www.orgish.com to remove the video, despite the agency's lack of legal authority to do so, the website managers briefly removed it from the site. However, Theodore D. Hickman Jr., the president and CEO of ProHosters.com, an internet hosting company, defended his company's defiance of the FBI's wishes in a letter to viewers of the video clip. His open letter stated, quote, In my opinion, it should not be hidden or swept under the carpet. It should be available to anyone who chooses to watch it. We have a right to see what terrorism can and will do to our nation if it is not eradicated at the source. The beauty of our country is that any American can deem what he or she wishes to be morally right or wrong based on his opinion and his judgment. It is for this reason that Pro Hosters has chosen to release the video in its entirety to the public. On the other hand, Tamara Brooks and Jackie Maris, their parents and law enforcement personnel, were eager for media attention to the young woman's kidnap and rescue. But an obvious difference is the end for each story. Daniel Pearl was murdered. The young women were rescued. If Pearl had been rescued, the propaganda piece produced by his captors and Pearl's response to his ordeal would have become a litany feature by every newsroom in the land. If Tamara and Jackie had been murdered, the struggle of whether to identify them as rape victims 
would not have occurred. No news organization would have thought twice about the need to call them by their names. In one case, the critics of coverage sought to shield Pearl's propagandized parroting of his captor's anti-American and anti-Israel message and his beheading. In the other, critics wanted to shield the features and the voices and the stories of survivors of sexual assault. The conventional norm for the U.S. news media is to usually refrain from showing deaths or dismemberment and to usually refrain from identifying victims of sex crimes. It is our view that in determining the newsworthiness of a visual message, these differences should make no difference. Consent by a story subject, family, or even the consent of governmental agencies is simply not a relevant consideration in the coverage of news. What a surprise it is to young photojournalism students is that they don't have to ask for consent before taking someone's picture for a news story. It's when they realize that they shouldn't ask that they're on their way to developing their professional news judgment. We are not arguing in favor of ambush journalism, but rather are pointing out that it is the journalist's job to decide which visuals are newsworthy and which ones are not. It is the journalist's job to gather and share those that are. The pictures associated with Pearl's abduction and exploitation did not lose their newsworthiness because he died. The pictures and texts that identified the kidnapped women did not lose their worthiness when it became known after the fact that they were raped. The established newsworthiness of those visuals simply came into conflict with conventional journalistic norms. Conflict as illustrated by these examples should signal the need for news gatherers and managers to think outside the box of print or don't or broadcast or don't. Unfortunately, in the case of Daniel Pearl, the conflict led most news organizations to stick to the text in their effort to be compassionate. In the case of Brooks and Maris, it led to many of the same organizations to participate in a visual orgy with the assumption that the women's consent negated the need for journalistic compassion. The news organizations were wrong in both cases. Compassion had nothing to do with the citizens' need to see these images. It is important to see the cost of war coverage in the voice, face, and death of Daniel Pearl. It is important to see the attempt by his captors and murderers to use his tragic death as an attempt at communicating demands and recruit to their cause. Titled, The Slaughter of the Spy Journalist, The Jew, Daniel Pearl. The video shows a tired and unshaven Pearl talking at times into the camera or off to the side interspersed with news of violent scenes and gunshot sound effects. At the end, a man uses a large knife to slice into Pearl's neck. The final scene shows someone holding up Pearl's decapitated head by his hair while a series of written demands scroll up the screen. The video is at once gruesome in its crude use of visual propaganda and in the banality of its violence. It is also important to see the happy outcome in the voices and the faces of the women 
who survived an abduction that had been broadcasted throughout the country. For example, People magazine featured a group photo that spoke to the feminine empowerment and unity as Tamara and Jackie linked arms with a grandma and their mothers. It is important for citizens to see these stories because we are a self-governing nation. Visual messages tell a story differently from print, but almost always both are necessary for a full understanding of a complex story. The knowledge that comes from both is important and complementary in producing an emotional and intellectual understanding. What citizens need to see, news organizations have a responsibility to show. But a responsibility to show a story is not the same as a license to exercise no editorial judgment or restraint. Great journalism is found in how stories are shown not whether they are shown. Great journalism shows sensitivity to victims of violence while reminding citizens through the victim stories that every citizen in a self-governing society has the power and the responsibility to help shape a world that doesn't include political or pathological violence towards innocence. In the case of the visual coverage of Daniel Pearl, Tamara Brooks, and Jackie Maris, we found no example of journalists noticing or notifying the viewing public of the need to see these visual messages or the corresponding responsibility that follows. Now, dreamers, these two articles clearly saw Tamara and Jackie's media coverage differently. But I do believe it kind of happened in stages. When they were missing, they were all over the news. And when it was discovered they were rape survivors, the media pulled back. But the girls wanted to tell their story, and they did. But now, searching the internet, you really won't find much, if any, clips of them speaking to the media. You can find printed articles, but there aren't any videos. So earlier I mentioned that I asked about this in the Facebook group, what your opinions were about keeping the identities of sexual assault survivors from the media. Here are some of the responses that the post received. Vicky commented and said that she did not see keeping identities private from the media as a stigma, but rather an issue of privacy. The media reveals way too much about too many people. She said that she loves reading the news and she often feels bad for seeing or hearing about the details of someone's life that's really none of her business. She sees no purpose for the media to publish stories like this with their identities, but people who are victims of assaults, car accidents, and the such often end up being public fodder, and she just doesn't agree with that. Amber said that she thinks it depends on how the survivor feels. Some people feel that being identified is being re-victimized. Some feel that being identified is standing up. But it should always be about how the person involved feels about being identified. Zach said that he can't stand it when they don't shame the criminals. And I guess that's one way of handling it. 
Often the person that is assaulted feels the shame, especially when they go to trial. Cheryl commented and said that she thinks not identifying survivors protects them from the friends and family of their attacker. Samantha agreed with some of the other commenters that it depends on the survivor and they are likely to all feel differently about it. At the same time, she pointed out that sexual assault is horrific and it's not something that the public automatically gets the right to know. The survivor should be the one to decide if he or she wants people to know and whom they'd like to share it with. She said, imagine applying for a job or going out on a date and everyone knowing something so intimate about you. Samantha later commented again and said that identifying survivors potentially puts them at risk, especially if it's a crime perpetrated by a stranger, if their name is all over the news. She also points out that Facebook and other social media could be a dangerous tool for the criminal and their associates to retaliate or harass the victim. Andrea said that they should be able to choose if they want to be named or not, that it may empower them to have the choice rather than the choice being made for them. Tracy said whether we like it or not, survivors are still going to be judged. Tracy shared a very personal story with us in her comment, and she gave me permission to share it with you here. Twelve years ago, she was raped, and one of the first things the prosecutor said to her was that she was a quote-unquote good victim because she wasn't drunk or out in a bar or dressed suggestively. She was grabbed in her front yard on her way to her car headed to work, and she would never forget those words. As a matter of fact, she can't even remember anything he said to her afterwards. And to her, she feels like it should be up to the survivor, but she leans towards keeping identities shielded. Carol, also a survivor, said that she was glad that she was not identified. She was only 11, and it was nobody's business. Sarah agreed with the other commenters that she thinks it should be up to the victim. Whether she would be shamed or not, she doesn't think she would want her identity to be public. She values her privacy a great deal, and no one should be able to take that away from her. The perpetrator has already taken something away, and they should not be allowed to take away privacy or anonymity as well. But she also said that if a survivor chooses to speak out, that she would support that. But ultimately, it's up to each individual. Amber chimed back in, saying that in her experience, her abuse was not sexual. But until she was ready to talk about it, she didn't want anyone else talking about it. Elizabeth said that she feels it's partially because sexual abuse is often viewed as making someone damaged goods and undesirable. Even though we claim to have moved beyond that, we haven't. It also sets up questions that are leading and blaming, as if there is anything that means someone should have to have been a victim. And to her, these things reinforce feelings of worthlessness, shame, doubt, and depression, and it outwardly looks weak because people don't want to talk about the original problem. Tori commented and said, 
if you are a survivor, victim of any ordeal that our culture calls shameful, you know the fear of people finding out. The same awkward stares and ignorant conversations only tactless idiots start. The press has a duty to protect the identity of the survivor and at the same time report the story as accurately as possible. It's a delicate situation, especially if there's a missing person reported spread around like wildfire before the details of the assault were released. You can go back and scrub the online articles, delete photos, etc. But once the information is out there, it's out there. And Tori, without even knowing what this episode was about, pretty much nailed exactly what we're talking about here today. Mar, hi Mar. She said that she thinks it's a valid and respectable policy to protect the identities of the survivors, that it's none of her business what the names of the survivors are unless they want her to know their names. She also doesn't see it as hiding, but Mar only said that based on the way I worded the question. I should have chosen a better word, but I was pulling the question from the article and I wasn't thinking about the vernacular. Chris said that by default, the identities of survivors should be kept out of the media, but their stories should be shared if they want it to be known, but that there are countless reasons why someone would want to keep their experience quiet. And Peggy agreed as well that going public should be the choice of the survivor if they are an adult. When it comes to minors, she feels like they should be protected from being identified by law. Ella commented with another very personal story and said that she was held for more than a day and brutalized over and over. She escaped out a window when he left the room and in her voice had told her to run. But the police didn't do much. This was in the late 70s. Other than ask her why she took a ride from the guy and what it was she did to turn him on, she was sorry that she even went to the police. And it is her understanding that her attacker eventually killed a woman, but she can't know for sure. She would not have wanted to have given her name, considering the times with the rampant victim shaming. She was young and homeless at the time, but if it happened now, she thinks she would let them use her name, but would want his name spread far and wide so everyone in his life knew him for what he was. And just so you know, and just to be clear, all of the women commenting here today with a personal story of survival gave me their permission to share their names and their stories. So I want to thank you for being willing to open up to us about a matter that's so private. And I know you know this is a very safe place. Nobody listening to your experience on this show would ever judge you or blame you. So in the aftermath of Jackie and Tamara's ordeal, they did speak to the media. I believe they went on some talk shows. They were on the cover of People magazine. Then after a year passed, and then a second year, Tamara spoke out to the media again but Jackie's mom conducted an interview a year after the kidnapping. But beyond that, 
I didn't find any more. It seems in the years since they last spoke to the media, they've maintained their privacy. One year after the events of that day, Nadine Dreyer, Jackie's mom, spoke to the Antelope Valley Press. She said Jackie was kind of taking life one day at a time. She highlighted that her daughter had always been strong and a confident person, and she continues to be, but some days are still really difficult to get through. Jackie graduated from high school the following June and had plans to go to cosmetology school as well as study computer graphics and photography, ultimately wanting to operate her own photography studio. She attended an event that marked the first anniversary of the Amber Alerts implementation in California. And as for Tamara, she said Jackie and her talk on occasion, but it's kind of tapered off over the last few months or so. Two years after the kidnapping, Tamara spoke to People Magazine again. By then, she was 18 and a freshman at UCLA. It was right after the attack that she started 11th grade, but she did not fare well in school, and she was actually falling apart. Prior to the traumatic events of that night, she and Jackie were kidnapped and assaulted. Tamara was a straight-A student with lots of friends, who she loved hanging out with. But all of that stopped, and she was failing all of her classes. She told People Magazine, quote, I couldn't concentrate. I was having flashbacks. I was having nightmares. But the whole time, I had a smile on my face. I didn't want anyone to pity me or think of me as a victim. I didn't want anything to be wrong with me. Considering the trauma that Tamara survived, that just wasn't going to happen. She said, quote, The first year was really hard. I was not going to let Ratliff get the best of me, but I would get home from school so exhausted and so sad. She said that she and Jackie turned down most media requests for interviews. But they did participate in a couple. Like I mentioned earlier, they talked to People magazine. They were also on the Today Show. And they met President Bush at an event to promote the adoption of the Amber Alert system across the country. But the fallout of this, unfortunately, Tamara's one-time friends seemingly jealous of the attention that she was receiving, suddenly stopped being her friend. People who she didn't know would stop her and ask her very personal questions about the ordeal. And before long, she started to begin like her safety was in jeopardy again. Even Tamara's sister noted that for a very long time, she did not want to be touched. It was many months before her sister was even able to give Tamara a hug. Noticing a markedly dramatic change in Tamara's behavior, one of her teachers recommended a therapist. Tamara did not want to go, 
and she ended up canceling the first three appointments that she had scheduled. Finally, after the third cancellation, the therapist called Tamara's mom and said that she would not be willing to schedule Tamara for another appointment if she failed to show up for a fourth time. So Tamara's mom forced her to go, and the therapist would go on to diagnose Tamara with post-traumatic stress syndrome. And Tamara continued to see her therapist every week for two years working on not only allowing herself to overcome her fear, but to gain back her sense of safety. Therapy finally provided an outlet for Tamara in working through her fears, as well as the love and support of her family. That was a huge thing in her recovery. And as for Jackie, their lives had taken different directions, but she acknowledges that she would not have survived this if it wasn't for Jackie. And she loves her. And this brings this 60th episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come join us over at the discussion page on Facebook. We've had a whole bunch of new members join over the last few weeks. It's one of the places we talk about the cases we cover in every episode. You can also find us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And if you find yourself needing more California Dreaming, please go visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash CaliforniaPod and browse through some of the bonus episodes available there. And for a pledge as little as $1, you can gain access to many of the bonus episodes. And there will be at least one bonus episode up for each month. And to go along with Patreon, California Dreaming has a sister Facebook page, exclusive for Patreon subscribers, called KD2 Postmortem. So make sure you join that if you join Patreon. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I, for one, am so proud to be a part of an amazing group of shows and hosts, including The Concession Stand, Busted Wide Open, Super Nerds UK, 410 Owned, Historium, Vox Arcana, and The Podians. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, our blog, and if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Please stay tuned at the end of the show for two promos. One is called Crime Sphere, hosted by Mike Morford and Nina Instead, and Southern Fried True Crime, hosted by Erica Kelly. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams. I'm Nina Instead of the Already Gone Podcast. 
I'm Mike Morford, host of The Murder in My Family and co-host of Criminology. Join us for Crime Sphere, a bi-weekly podcast that looks at the latest in true crime news and entertainment. We bring you updates on cases, reviews of what's new in true crime media, and interviews with the people behind the crime media that you love. In our most recent episode, we interview noted criminal defense attorney David Rudolph, who you may recognize from the Netflix documentary, The Staircase. Crime Sphere is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and your favorite podcatchers. Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, host of the podcast Southern Fraud True Crime. Each week, I take a look at a different Southern crime, and like any good gossip, I'm interested in anyone or anything. I cover contemporary and historical cases, and I love listener suggestions. Come join me as I explore the dark underbelly of the Deep South. I'm a one-woman show in a narrative format, kind of like sitting by the fire and listening to a story. So pull up a chair and subscribe if you're interested. I'd love to have you. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and just about any podcast platform. Just search for Southern Fried True Crime. Until then, y'all take care. <laughs>